All right, so we, um, since we're still in 2 Peter, we're going to have to back up a little bit in order to gain some momentum to move forward because, as we've said over and over again, 2 Peter is one linear thought all the way through, one thought leading to the next thought, and one concept building, little concepts building to that one linear thought. And so um, that always means we've got to go back a little bit in order to move forward to connect all the pieces. So we're going to start back in verse 19, which Paul unpacked last week for us. And as we read through this, I want you to recall that when you see the word they, um, all through this whole passage of 2 Peter 2, the word they is referencing false teachers, and in some cases, those who are following the false teachers. So that's who they are. And as we talked about so much of the New Testament, the teaching is about us. Um, And we would say us. This they is a don't be like them passage. So you need to be us not them, uh, in this passage. And so as we go through this, um, we're going to wrap up this chapter, Lord willing, today. So I'm going to read through, starting in verse 19, 2 Peter 2, 19 through 22. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true Proverbs, what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So start with this word freedom just for a minute. It says that they promise freedom. But we hear the word freedom. What does the word freedom even mean? And so I always love, when I have a question like that, I love to just go to the internet and type in that question, uh, that type of question, just to see what type of absolutely horrifying answers the world seems to have to this. And I was gifted with this. Um, uh, uh, Morgan Freeman has a, a show that he did on National Geographic, and, and so when you're talking about Morgan Freedom, Freeman, you're, obviously you're talking about God himself, right? And so, or at least someone who plays God on movies. And so, um, this, we, we got to take this seriously. And these are what, this is what I love, this is not a mockery, this is, these are what are considered the good answers that he got. So let's run that real quick, if we get... That's how we start, right there. So that is a man. La liberté de parler, de réfléchir et d'agir. Freedom is the power to create your own existence in this world. I think this is an utopia. I think this is not existing in reality. 
Being happy in your own skin can be extremely liberating. Volare, nuotare. Freedom is nice. Oh, freedom is everything. Volnos estamos de umira bravo. Es algo que todos tenemos, pero no muchos lo conocemos. Not working, going to the beach. La sobota vivila samo kad vih imala krila, pa mogu da poleti, ništa manje. Think about that. Freedom. What is freedom? Um, so as always seems to be the case when you gather together the ignorance of mankind, <clears throat> you come up with some pretty terrible answers to questions like that, don't you? Um, there weren't a lot of themes there outside of alcohol and apparently being naked. Those were the two... <laughs> themes that I picked up on, or the inability of people to define a word without using that word. If you're, if you're defining freedom with the word freedom, you're failing at the whole definition game, just so you'll know. Like, you're, you're, miss, you're missing something. Um, uh, it, it boggles my mind to hear people say things like, freedom means to be able to create yourself in the world. Mary, there's, that's delusional. How do you... I'd love to know how he managed to pull that off, how he managed before he existed to create himself. That's a great... The only one who I was interested in all of them, the follow-up, is the African-American lady who starts by saying freedom is nice. I want to know what she said next. Like, I want to, I think she was about to say something wise, so they had to cut that off fast. Like, they had to, like, can't let people see that. It is a, it's fascinating. Well, let me help you know what the Bible teaches about freedom. The New Testament is clear into what freedom is. Freedom is the opportunity to serve others and God. That's what freedom is. Freedom is the opportunity to serve others and God. Now, I could give you a whole series of passages, a do, half a dozen of them. Isaiah 61.1, 1, 1 Corinthians 9.19, Romans 6.22, 1 Corinthians 7.22. But let me pick two that are very, um, very clear. Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is the Christian ethic of freedom. Freedom is the opportunity to serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16, here's what Peter says. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is what the idea of freedom really is. Obviously, freedom just means choice, the ability to choose things. And in the Christian mindset, it is the ability, the opportunity to choose to serve one another and God. Um, it's, it's not as apparently the least the people on National Geographic who made through the editing process believe, which is freedom is the freedom to be enslaved to yourself, to your whims, to your desires. Now, maybe it is that. Maybe freedom means, hey, you could choose to be enslaved to yourself. That's a really dumb way to use your freedom. Um, if, if you've ever met you, you will know you are not someone you would need to be enslaved to. That would not be smart. Um, if you know yourself at all, you know that you as a slave master is not a safe thought. And so you being a slave to yourself is not a safe way to think about reality, to think about the way you want to live your life. But everyone's a servant to something. Everyone's a slave to something. Um, so what the acting, we act as though we're enslaved to things, sometimes we're not. That's certainly something that Peter talks about. But beware when people seek to tell you that freedom is merely the freedom to serve yourself, to choose what you want. 
When they tell you that, they are trying to enslave you to something, if nothing else, to yourself. Let's unpack further. Because for a second here, the they is also talking about those who are following these false teachers, not just the false teachers themselves. I mean, it applies to both populations. 2.20 says this, for if, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. So they escape defilements. They've gotten out of the swamp of worldly muck and mud. How? Well, apparently, according to this passage, they've come to the awareness of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They learned the truth of Christ, and they were able to wade out of this perverse freedom of the world, and then they wade back in. They wade back in, and they are re-entangled in that same swamp that they just got out of. They are then overcome, it says. The word here in the Greek, um, literally, to be the inferior power, to be the weaker force, to be conquered or to be um, enslaved, to be made a prisoner of. And this condition is worse than the first. Let's talk about this. So one, there's a quick, practical, psychological answer to this, what it means that their condition would be worse than the first. Any of us who have ever been addicted to anything, and most of us have, we know what it's like to work through, through self-control, through good habits, through whatever, to go to a season of not doing that thing. We get to a season where we're able to say, you know what, I'm going to work out faithfully, and we do. You know what, I'm going to say no to a third donut, and we do for a while. And, or we're going to say no to pornography, and we do. And they, like, these are the different things. And you get to a place where you're living in a certain degree of success in regards to something addictive like that. But many of us, we've also then experienced falling back into that entangling addictive sin. And how often is it worse than it was before? How much more hopeless do you eventually over time begin to feel at ever conquering this sin? That you face it and you have some success, but then you fail. And the natural temptation is over time to give up. We just, we just can't do it anymore. We can't keep fighting it. We can't dealing with it. You try and try and fight and fight and fail. And then eventually you say, well, I'm not going to say what most people say in that moment. That they're just, but they just give up. There's one way to understand the weariness that sets in from the defeats that follow freedom. That's just practical. However, Plenty have indicated that this passage makes the case that a person could become a Christian, authentically be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, saved by the grace of the works of Jesus Christ by faith, and then lose that right relationship with God. That they could be truly justified in Christ and then lose that status of being truly justified in Christ. I was raised on this. Um, I was raised in a church that taught this from about 6 to 14 um, and the church didn't teach it like in our face, and Sunday school certainly didn't that often, but the general message was this. Listen, if, if you're messing up, you're probably losing your salvation, and you need to pray every day to get that right, that, that you have your salvation, but then throughout the day, through your own sin, your own rebellion, your own disobedience, you probably lost that salvation, and now you're lost again, and now you need to reclaim that salvation. And so you were supposed to pray every night, confess your sins, ask God to forgive you, and to save you. 
There are even children's prayers that are taught to kids that basically have this message. Lord, I lay me down to sleep is an example of that. That whole prayer is about, I've probably lost my salvation, and I hope that you will take my soul again. That's the idea. Okay? And so I was raised on The camp where we went to camp was a nightmare. Like when I look back now, understanding what camp ministry can be, and I look back at the, where we went to camp, and I realize just how bad that was handled. For example, I remember very clearly, and some of you have heard me talk about this, being taught that obviously anyone who goes to a rated R movie has lost their salvation, right? I mean, obviously, right? I mean, like, clearly that's a, an unforgivable sin in God's kingdom is to go to a rated R movie. So, so let's just imagine that you're like a 14-year-old boy who has bought a ticket for a movie that he's allowed to see, but then sneaks into Rambo instead. I mean, hypothetically, I just want you to imagine that, right? And so you're, you're sitting in Rambo, and you know, this is, what you're, this is what you've been taught, and you know that if the rapture happens, this is what I was taught, if a rapture happens while you're in a rated R movie, obviously, you're not getting raptured, right? I mean, for obvious reasons, right? You've clearly lost your salvation by going to a rated R movie. And so if it's rapture, and, and the, the, literally remember being taught that you're going to come out of that movie, Right? And you're going to come out and all your friends and family are going to be gone because they got raptured and you didn't. Looking back, I'm not sure they knew my friends and family that well either, to be perfectly honest, but <clears throat> that's one thing. But that was the picture created for me, was that because I'm the one who held on to salvation, my grip was the grip that mattered, that every time I messed up and lost hold or lost hand or whatever, gave up those, my hands on God and reached for something sinful, I now have lost my salvation and have chosen this instead. And I was raised having believed that. A lot of mainline Christianity teaches this, this idea, that my salvation is dependent on my merit and my ability to stick into things. And it is a life of constant fear, understandably. So what I want to do is I want to approach this conversation because I think it's an important one for any church to understand. It's going to be very, very difficult for us to live with any sense of ability to take risks, to seek to live this out. If we think, man, I take a risk and I mess it up and I'm going to hell. And that's the kind of, that's the way that this often gets taught. So what I want to do is first I want us to look at the big picture because I know there are scriptures that people can pull here or there, here or there, that teach, seem to teach one thing or another and contradict each other in regards to this topic. So let's start, I'll get to those, but let's start instead with the overarching pictures of scripture. What are some of the overarching analogies and pictures and concepts that scripture creates when it comes to our relationship with God? What are some of the things that that is connected to? Our relationship with God is like what? Let's, okay, let's do that one. Children, hey, we are a child and he is our father. Now, not all religions teach this, by the way. In Islam, it's actually a sin to refer to God as father. Um, he is master, not, uh, not father. That's, that's an important distinction. But in Christianity and in Judaism, God is father and we are sons and daughters. What types of sons and daughters? What is the nature of that connection? Adoption. Someone said it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine, if you will, for me, I want you to imagine that analogy played out with the idea that every time I let go and I reach for something else, I have now changed my identity and my status with God, okay? Let's see how that works. So I adopt a child. Emma, you are my child. Michael, you are my child. Like that is a, I have adopted them. And then they mess up. They sin against me. They disobey. They rebel. They lie. They steal. They cheat. 
and I go, now you're not my son. I have now denied you. I have disowned you. You're not mine anymore. And they come back and say, I'm so sorry, I repent of the bad thing I did. Because I'm sure that happens in some universe, right? Where they come back and do that. I'm so sorry for this bad thing I've done. And I go, okay, good, now you're my son again. And then they mess up and I go, now you're not. I disown you. Oh, now you are, now, but now you're not. But now you are, but now you're not. How many of those rounds would I have to do before church discipline should be applied to me? Not many, right? I mean, it's unthinkable. I can barely even talk about it. Like, that is so epically evil, it's hard for me to even talk about what type of relationship that is. Uh, we would call that a dysfunctional or abusive parent who treated their children that way, right? Anytime you're creating a picture in theologically in which God is a worse parent than you are, you probably need to rethink the theology, right? This is a, that's not, it's an it's, it's unacceptable picture of God as a that poor of a parent who would go, I have chosen you, and now I have denied you, I have forsaken you, I have disowned you, back and forth, dozens of times a day, dozens of times a week for that identity change. Okay, good. What's another one? Marriage. Marriage is another big one. You already can see where this is going to go, Right? You have a groom. Jesus Christ is the groom. He has chosen us. He has been betrothed to us. He has chosen us as his church to be his bride. He is now going to go prepare a place for us that where he is, we may also be. He's going to come back and get us. In the meantime, if we mess up, we're no longer his bride. But then we are, but then we're not. But then we are, but then we're not. Oh, you messed up again. You're not a perfect bride anymore. Therefore, I now divorce you again. Now you repent. Okay, now we'll get remarried. Now we'll divorce you. Understand, that's an identity change. To lose your salvation would be an identity change. You're a new creation, now you're the old creation again. Now you're a new creation again, now you're the old creation again. That's the picture created by this. What type of a husband is that? Yeah, not much of one, right? Good. What's another example? Okay, sheep and shepherd. Good, another great one. The picture of a sheep and shepherd. Again, do the same thing. What is that? What happens? What type of a shepherd are we talking about here? Oh, you're my sheep. Okay, now I'm kicking you out of the fold because you're not a very good sheep. And some of you already are like, I feel like there's a parable about that in the Bible. You're right, there is. There's a whole story in the Bible. Can you imagine that, that story told differently according to this? Where Jesus says, behold, I am the shepherd and you are the sheep. And I keep kicking you out of the sheepfold because you're not a very good sheep. But then I have to come find you. Because now you're a lost sheep, and I've got to risk the 99 to come find you. And by the way, the other 99 all got kicked out too. This is a very different parable with this picture in mind. We talked about father, parent, and child. I, think, I feel like there's a parable about that one too, right? In which you actually have a child who with absolute intention is as disrespectful as he could be in his culture and denies his father, calls his father essentially crazy legally, that he's no more longer fit to lead our family, and I'm taking my inheritance, and I'm going for the hills. In that process, does he cease to be the father's son? He does not. He is still his son. He's a rebellious son. He's a distant son. He's a disconnected son. And he is his son. And even though he thinks probably I've lost my status as son, when he comes back, the father says, no, 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 my son was dead, and now he's alive. I feel like that's in the Bible. That picture. Any others, by the way? So father, son, sheep, shepherd, bride, and groom. 
Okay, we've got vine. There you go. Not bad. The idea of the vine and the branches. And the idea being, like, listen, we gotta, we got to cut you and attach you and cut you and attach you and cut you and attach you over and over again. Good. Michael, you have an example? Okay, the fruit tree, a great example that we are that's similar to the vine idea, that he is like the tree and we are like branches and we are, we are able to produce fruit there. And yes, there are those who don't produce fruit because they don't belong on the tree. They are dead. They're not, they don't belong there. That's a different story. And sometimes we try to fake that. This is about living it out and we try to tie fruit onto the tree to fake it. I will tell you one thing, I'll mention, I was going to mention it later in the sermon, I'll just say it now. One of the things I love, I love is when you have someone who's been a part of the church, even in church leadership, on staff, deacon, uh, leadership board, whatever, and at some point they come forward and say, guys, I don't know Jesus, and I need to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Because listen, we can fake it for a long time. It's amazing how long human beings can fake it. C.S. Lewis says, those of us who are faking it, those who are faking it, those who are trying to follow Christ without Christ, it just makes you mad. If you're one of those people who finds yourself angry all the time, there may be something to that, to wrestle through that. Do I really know Christ and the power of his gospel? If I did, it seems like I'd be less angry all the time, especially when I'm angry because of the failure of myself and others. Citizenship is one. Again, the analogy falls apart. You're a citizen of the United States. Now we're kicking you out. Go find another home. Okay, now we'll let you back. Okay, now we're kicking you out. It just would be a horrible way to live. And of course, one of my favorites, which we're going to reference here in the book of Hebrews, is the idea of a savior. This picture of a savior, the analogy that's a beautiful picture of a sa- someone needs to be saved and someone is going to save them. What type of a savior goes to save somebody and doesn't get them to safety? We would call that a bad savior, right? That's kind of the definition of savior. We would say they are a failure as a savior. If you have a lifeguard who goes to get someone at 100 yards out in the ocean and they get them and they can't get them to shore, they have literally failed at their one job, right? Years ago, using talk, teaching through the book of John, I believe it was, I used this picture to exemplify why you want to follow Christ, okay? So I think we've got this picture. It's made a lot of headlines over the years, right? This, is a, this was a famous one when I used it. Now, so you go, you cover up the rock, and you go, yeah, I think, I, think, I think Zach could probably save me. He looks pretty buff. I think he could do it. But if I get to choose, <laughs> if I get to choose who's dragging me out of the surf, it's going to be the monster on the other side, right? It's going to be the guy who I think can probably pick me up by my ankle and drag me above his head all the way to the shore without me being able to, I could fight all I want. I'm not beating him at it, right? This is the picture. You want a savior who actually can save you. Not one who's not going to get you. Oh, now I'm saving you. Oh, no, you messed up. No, oh, you lost grip on me. Now you're drowning again. I better grab you again. I better, oh, oh listen, tell you what, I'm just going to hold my hand out there and you grab hold and I'll walk while you hold. What type of a lifeguard is that? A failed one. Do you see how uncomfortable now just the idea that Jesus would lose hold of us should make us? It feels contemptuous to talk about Jesus that way, doesn't it? It feels like you're being insulting to him. It's not insulting to us. Listen, if salvation was dependent upon us, of course we would lose it. Every single one of us would, over and over again. That's exactly how that would work. We're not faithful. We're not steadfast. We're not steady. We're like sheep who wander. We need a shepherd who is not like a sheep. 
We need a shepherd who can come get us even when we wander. So I want us to take a quick look at a couple of key passages that I think will show us what's going on here in 2 Peter. Rather than look at all the passages that defend security, and there are dozens and dozens, this language, by the way, if you want to study this further, is often called the perseverance of the saints, meaning those who follow Christ persevere. We go all the way to judgment following Him. Or sometimes it's called security of salvation, meaning that the salvation we have is secure. And in the Baptist world, sometimes it's referred to as once saved, always saved. I don't love that language as much. It's not as precise. It creates the imagery that like somehow I am once saved and therefore I am always saved as if it rests on me and it does not. Um, But the truth is that once I have been bestowed, you are my son. There's nothing I can do to change that identity. You are now my bride. There's nothing I can do to change that identity. I am saving you. There's nothing I could do to change that once he's decided to save me. So if we take a quick look at this, I thought we'd look at a couple of the primary ones used to defend the loss of salvation and then show how they relate to this passage in 2 Peter. So we're going to look at the book of Hebrews for a moment. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is very, very important. It's one of my favorite books um, in the New Testament, maybe my second favorite book in the New Testament. It's the book of Hebrews. So the purpose of Hebrews that says this, the message is this, Jesus is better. He's better. You name it. If you're a Hebrew audience, and I go, all the things that are important to you, and I would say, what's important to you? And you would say, the law. Good. Yes. The temple. Yes. Uh, um, The priests. Yes. The sacrifice. Yes. Moses. Absolutely. The angels. Yes. All very, very important. And then I would write a book that says, Jesus is better than every one of those. He's better at each of their jobs than any of of them are at their own job. He's a better messenger than angels. He's a better lawgiver than Moses. He's a better law than the law, a better sacrifice than the sacrificial system, a better priest than the priests. He is a better example of everything you're looking for. It'd be a great thing for somebody to write Hebrews in terms of the American culture. What is it that you want? Do you want money? You want success? You want security? You want comfort? Listen, he's better. He's better comfort than your comfort. He's better, he's better security than your money. He's better, we could do the same sort of thing, but that's the picture. With that in mind, I'm going to read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Probably the most famous of the passages that is used to defend that Christians can lose their salvation. So let me read it. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away... To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, this is key. Now, you read that, and standing as a standalone, you go, wow, Chris, it kind of sounds like someone could be a believer. In fact, the language is almost hyperbole. Like, this is a real believer. They have tasted it. They have felt it. They are empowered by it. They have experienced it. This is a true believer. And I completely agree with that. This passage, the writer of Hebrews here is referencing a true believer. In fact, the language is meant to, go like, is meant to make you go like, am I a true believer? Like, have I experienced all those things? That's really, that's some amazing description that's there. I think it's intentionally meant to be very clear that this person is a true believer. And being a true believer... The author is now going to make a point. Being a true believer means that Jesus the Savior, the perfect priest, the perfect temple, the ultimate sacrifice. The question would be, if Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, for which of your sins did he pay? For which of your sins did the perfect sacrifice Jesus Christ pay for? 
All of them. Now, if it's all of them, if you mean that, the writer of Hebrews will refer to that phrase once for all. Why doesn't Jesus have to come back and be crucified every year? Why does that have to be crucified? Because the, the priests had to do that every year. They have to do it every year. They've got to sacrifice. In fact, amazingly, they have to first sacrifice for their own sins first because they're that flawed a priest. They're so flawed, the first thing they've got to do is take care of their sins. Jesus doesn't do that. There's no sacrifice for Jesus. He has no sins. Then he sacrificed himself. Why does he have to come back every year and do that? Because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all sins for all time. Past, present, future. His blood is capable of covering all the sins. All of them. Once for all is what the writer of Hebrews says. So if that's the case, ask yourself, having been having had your sins paid for by Jesus Christ, and you've accepted this free gift, which, of your, which sins could you get back on your record? Which sin could you then become guilty of later? So if you say, if you say one, here's what you're saying. He missed one. I mean, he's, he's a great priest, but he's not the best priest. I mean, he's a good sacrifice, but he missed a few sins. I mean, he covered a whole bunch of them. That's great. But he missed some pretty big ones that are kind of important. And somehow I got that back on my record. He drank the cup of God's wrath for the sins of mankind, but he left a few drops. Do you see how blasphemous and contemptuous? Like some of you are actually feeling a little nervous about me even saying it as an example like that, right? You're like, don't, don't say any more of those, right? It should make us nervous. It's contemptuous. We're treating Jesus as though he needs us to evaluate what he missed and what he didn't miss. I'm just going to sit down with you and have a little conversation about what you kind of failed at at this whole Savior thing, Jesus. That's the conversation that this implies. The writer of Hebrews, I believe, is making it very clear. Listen, if you manage to get a sin back on your record, having been empowered by the work of Jesus Christ, if you somehow manage to get a sin back on your record, which, by the way, is not possible because he has paid for all sins once for all, but if you manage to get a sin back on your record, what would then be your condition? And the answer is hopeless. It would be impossible to renew you to repentance. Why? Why? What would you need if you got a sin back? If I somehow get a sin back on my record, what do I need? I need another crucifixion. I need Jesus to come back and be crucified all over again, and I need to be the one who does it, as my sin is the one that somehow he missed, and so we've got to call him back out of the stands. No, no, we've got to get you back here because you missed some sins, and we need you to die again for those, for those sins that you missed the first time around. Now does this passage make sense? When he says, when the writer of Hebrews says, it would be impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That makes sense? The writer of Hebrews, I think, is making exactly the opposite point that people use this passage to say. And by the way, one possible interpretation of this is if you get a sin back on your record, you're toast. I mean, you're done. No one teaches that. 
But that's clearly the implication of this passage. If you're going to teach that this passage says you can lose your salvation, you then must also teach. If you lose it, you're done. It's impossible to restore you to repentance. And there's no denomination that teaches that, not one. No one says, listen, you are saved, and you're saved so long as you behave, but the minute you misbehave, you lose your salvation, and then, by the way, you might as well take off. Because Jesus isn't coming back to be crucified again for you. He's died once for all. They cannot lay a new foundation. It would certainly be worse for them, by the way, if that's the interpretation, then Peter's words would make sense. The the new condition would be worse than the first, because now you're truly hopeless. I think it's best to understand that Jesus, being the perfect sacrifice, temple, and priest, has covered every single sin as a flawless and complete Savior, and therefore you could never get a sin back on your record. We could discuss it as an academic possibility. It cannot happen. You would be treating him contemptuously to say it was true. It's not true. Another passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, is another uh, uh, popular one. Let's look at it. Hebrews 10, 24 through 27. Now, you may notice a vast difference between Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Do you see it? Very different description. This person has not tasted. They have not been empowered. They do not see it and experience it. This is not real for them. They just know about it. They are aware of it. See how similar that is to the Second Peter passage, which says this, For if, after they have accept, escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are getting entangled to them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. These are about, both these passages, I believe very clearly, are about people who have heard and know the truth and have rejected it. They've heard it, but they've rejected it. And now they have no excuse but themselves. They have no one to blame but themselves. They've heard it, and they're in denial of it. They reject it. They're too smart for it. They're too sophisticated for it. They, they, God has not jumped through whatever hoops they have. And so they've said, this is, what I've, this is the standard I have, and God hasn't met it. I know the truth, and I've rejected the truth. And that is the position where someone could be worse than before. Why? Why would their condition be worse than before? Well, because we have a just God. And this just God engages in true justice in Scripture, even sometimes in a way we can understand it. It's beyond us, but there are sometimes there are ways we can understand it, and he gives us certain principles. I'll give you a couple. Luke 12, 48. Now, Luke 12 is a, a, a complex passage. I don't want to try to unpack all of it, so I'm just going to jump into the last half of this verse, which is a summary. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In other words, having a lot makes you responsible for a lot. This is a failing sometimes of the church in America. It's, it's, we have a lot, but we're not always as generous as we should be. Now, this is a generous church. Um, it's, I'm shocked over the years. It's always amazing to me how much finances and time uh, and creativity the people of this church, the members and ministers of this church are able to uh, and willing to give to support certain things. It, it always is amazing to me and, and so cool to be a part of it. 
That being said, as a nation, as a church, as individuals, we look at the fact that we have much. And by the way, I don't just mean money and time. What I mean primarily is the gospel. Is that, man, you pull into the wrong parking lot for South Spring and you're at another gospel teaching church. You might as well just stay there for that Sunday morning. Like, there's no point in even turning around and coming back out. You're fine. Just stay there. They're going to teach the gospel too. You go to other parts of America and there's not one in, in the whole community. You go to the parts of the world and there's not one in the whole state. We are so blessed. We should be motivated to action at a whole other level. How quickly can I give away this life has, that, that Christ has given me? How quickly can I sacrifice and serve? Um, uh, just t- talking uh, the, after the first service with um, a gentleman, and he was saying, it was with Reed, and he was talking about how, you know, we're, we were talking about how this, the, the often we've k- taken sometimes almost this self-care thing too far, where we're like, yeah, you know, we need to protect ourselves from harm so that we can serve long-term, but even then the goal of self-care is so you can serve longer. It's not just so you can take care of yourself, right? The whole reason you take the mask first in the airplane is so you can then give your mask to your child. It's not like, whoo, man, I feel so much better. Man, these masks are awesome. Don't you wish you had one? That is not the idea. That's not the biblical picture. We serve with that. We, when we take care of ourselves, when we rest, it's so we can give away our life serving. It's not just to feel better. It's to then feel better to, so that we can then serve more. We have been given much. There's a story of a man born blind um, in John chapter 9. That's one of my favorites for this. And the poor guy was born blind, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And part of the process of Jesus healing him, for some reason, involved Jesus spitting in the mud, spitting in the dirt, making mud, and putting it on the guy's eyes. The Bible doesn't explain why Jesus goes through this process, but he does. Problem was, making mud was illegal on the Sabbath. Now, not by God's word, it's nowhere in the Bible. That is all just because humans had applied that teaching. The the rabbinical law of the time said, making mud on the Sabbath is work, and therefore you're breaking God's word. And the religious leaders of the time seemed totally uncaring about the fact that a man born blind can now see. Like The passage is, they could not care less that this blind beggar of all these years can now see. They don't care. What they care about is that an ungodly person healed him. How do we know it's an ungodly person? Because he made mud on the Sabbath, and our rules say you can't do that. God protect us from ever being like that. They ever go, here's our rules, and they're the measurements of godliness. No, they're not. God's rules are the measurements of godliness, not our rules. But, so he's, they, they get mad, and they do this, and they actually confront him. They question him, condemn the blind man who's done nothing but be healed. They question him, condemn him, and then kick him out of their gathering for whatever reason. And John 9 says this, Jesus heard they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, great word, seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, i bet, and worshiped him. And Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Don't you love that? Every once in a while one of y'all does that. You'll come to me later and you'll be like, Hey, I feel like you were kind of picking on me in the sermon. Like, I didn't know you were there. I just taught what the Bible says. I'm wondering why you feel picked on. That was not purposeful, I promise. Like, this is what the Bible says. They're doing that. That's one of those things. Like, hey, hey, are you calling us blind? Like, I just said some people were blind. You seem to think I mean you. 
And Jesus said to them, listen to this. This is a justice statement. Jesus said to you, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, so your guilt remains. This, I believe, is the idea of why the condition is worse. You know the truth, and you refuse to be set free by it. And so in judgment, there's no excuse. There's no mitigating circumstances. Keep in, so Redfern and I talked about even how this passage reminds us of the Jesus teaching that says that um, it's in uh, Matthew 12 that talks about a demon-possessed man who gets the demon cast out, but the person does not convert and have be filled with the Spirit. So the demon goes and gathers a bunch of his buddies and comes back, and now the guy's situation is worse than it was before. Or remember the fact that Abraham, that God speaks to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. You can look it up, it's in 13 through 16. And in that passage, he says, hey, these people, these Amorites, these Canaanites who are, we're surrounded by here, you're going to come back and your people are going to wipe them out, which is disturbing to us, right? As, as, as the year 2022 Americans were like, I don't like the idea of a race of people coming in and wiping out people. That's really weird. It is weird. But in this passage, God actually tells Abraham, listen, you'll be long dead by the time it happens because the people of this land, they aren't wicked, en wicked enough yet to be wiped out. When they are, when the just thing to do would be to wipe them out, then I will bring your children and your grandchildren to come back and wipe them out. And by the way, that's four to five hundred years later. God says that way back here. These people are going to be wicked enough to wipe out, but they're not yet. Notice he doesn't even apply early justice. I know being God, these people deserve to be wiped out eventually. So let's just go ahead and do it now and get it over with. No, that would not be just. I'm going to do it. When they deserve it, then we'll take care of it. It's a fascinating understanding of God's justice. So, moving on here. 2 Peter 2, 21-22 says this, Given that their status is worse than it was before, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment given to them. What the true Proverbs has happened to them, the dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These false teachers know the truth, and sometimes false teachers teach the truth. We've seen that. The, the guy who did Ginger's and Mine's premarital counseling was having an affair. His premarital counseling was great. He knew the truth. He just wasn't applying the truth. It's a false teacher. They do not choose to live according to the truth, and people who are fooled by them and follow them are sometimes putting themselves in the same situation. Who is more foolish, as the wise man says, the fool or the fool who follows him? Right? Peter here quotes one of the grossest Proverbs anywhere, and it's intended to be gross. Like a, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. What a great picture of human nature this is. How do we fall back into the same sins and errors over and over again? It is gross. It's disgusting, the thought of a dog returning to its vomit. That's just gross. And yet, we do the same dumb things. In fact, there's now good evidence that not only when we engage in addictive behaviors, does it increase all of our reward system? Our reward system goes nuts and is very, very happy with us for doing this behavior. But the ability, the part of our brain that is the part that allows us to learn new dangers is, begins to be shut down. Brand new. This idea, in other words, you touch a spider and it bites you and you learn to be grossed out by that very, very quickly, right? Don't do that. That's bad. That's gross. When it comes to addictive behavior, your brain can't ever seem to discover the pattern. You engage in the addictive behavior, and you're like, why did I do that? That's stupid. That's gross. Why would I ever do that? But then the next time, it's like, no, that seems smart this time. This time, that seems like a good plan. 
Why don't our brain learn that? It seems to be really who we are. We return to our vomit. In this case, the vomit, the mud, is the sin of the rejection of the gospel. They have heard it, and they saw it, and they seem to get cleaned up at the surface level, only to return to the wallow. Skip Heitzig refers to this whole chapter about false teachers um, as Peter making sure that we're placing the correct label on bad medicine. This, this medicine will kill you. It looks like medicine, but the truth is it'll kill you. Put a big label on it with skull and crossbones, and don't ever touch it. We take a bite of it, spit it out. Now, he also mentions this, which I love to wrap up our time. Who did Peter have in mind? We talked about how Peter uses the phrase earlier in this chapter, someone who denies the master. And surely he has himself in mind when he talks about that. And the fact that, that God has saved him even from that. But think about Peter traveling for several years with someone who is there the whole time, who travels with Jesus, who hears him teach, but in the end will not trust him. Surely he's got Judas Iscariot in mind. Someone else who denied the Lord, but unlike Peter, did not repent, instead committed suicide. Don't follow Judas' example. You've heard the truth, respond to the truth. You've heard it and you know it, and I encourage you to respond rather than be distracted or drawn in by the false concepts. If you will, I want to ask you to stand with me. And, and I hope that as the Spirit is working in your heart, that you're hearing from the Spirit and, and, and maybe some of different ways. Maybe one is the comfort of recognizing he's a Savior who doesn't let go. If that's a terror in your heart or a fear in your heart or an obsession in your anxiety, for you to let that go. It, your salvation is not something for you to, to grip onto. It is not dependent on you or your merit. He's got you. If you've ever put your faith in him, he has not let you go. Now, if you look in your heart and you think, I don't know that I actually know him. I don't know that I put my faith in this faithful Savior. I hope you'll do that today and let us know. We'd love to pray with you. And so would a lot of different people in the room. There's probably people who are here who know you and love you and would love to pray that prayer with you. Even if you wonder about it, you can always pray. He's not some magician in the sky of a tower who's waiting for you to mess up. He is a father who loves you, a groom who has chosen you, a Savior who has grabbed hold of you. And you can just ask and have that conversation with him openly. So the prayer would be that you would be listening to the Spirit in the comfort of this and the challenge of this at the same time. That's one. Um, maybe whatever's going on for you, you've realized you've been following someone who is not teaching this way, not doing this way. You've been watching someone online who probably just needs to be turned off. If that's, if that's you, I, I warn you that the risks of that can be super high. There's a lot of great pastors and teachers online, and there's also a lot of trash um, taught in the name of Jesus. And it's hard to, when you don't know them, it's hard to know. It's hard to know what's going on with them. Um, so just, just be very aware as we look at this passage. Next week, we'll start with the next one. Also, if you've, um, if you've talked to Lance and, you, and our Welcome Home team and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family in a minute when we sing, when we pray, um, you can join us up here for that as well. So excited about that. Um, let me close out by reading this passage. Putting together um, some of Second Peter chapter 2. But false teach prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. 
They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, their last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These are the very words of God. 